Hey, good evening. Are you up all night tossing, turning, mind racing, trouble getting to sleep? Well, I think you're in the right place. Sleep With Me is proud to present Game of Thrones, our Game of Thrones podcast that puts you to sleep. We do it with an episode discussion. All you need to do is get in bed, turn out the lights, and press play. We'll do the rest. The podcast is going to create a safe place where you can set aside any thoughts that are racing through your head and keeping you awake at night. You're just going to listen to my voice. I'm going to distract you by talking about the season one, episode one, the premiere pilot, inaugural, inaugural Game of Thrones episode. Winter is coming. But I'm going to go on a little bit too long, so you'll go from being distracted to sound asleep. That's the goal. Is to just distract you from whatever's going through your head and let you fall asleep. Uh, now, one thing to note is that we do Game of Thrones episodes on Sunday night. We have non-Game of Thrones content on Tuesday and Thursday night. For If you don't watch Game of Thrones, these episodes, they might still work for you, but I heard from somebody on iTunes that said it didn't work for them. And I apologize for that. But I, I still think this is boring enough stuff. Like, if you don't watch Game of Thrones, it might be confusing. So yeah, try it out. If it doesn't work, just skip these episodes and go to our Tuesday and Thursday episodes. And those should work. Or if none of them work, you don't, yeah, that doesn't, then I guess the podcast doesn't work for you. But if it does, welcome. If this is your first time here and you watch Game of Thrones, this should help pull you to sleep. If you don't watch Game of Thrones, give it a shot. It works for some people. It doesn't work for everyone. We're on the web at www.sleepingwepodcast.com slash drones for the Game of Drones episodes. You can get a hold of me, feedback at sleepwithmepodcast.com. Leave a comment on our website. You can email me, feedback at sleepwithmepodcast.com. You can get me on Twitter at Dearest Scooter or Facebook, Sleep With Me Podcast. If you have any questions, comments, concerns. I think that's it for the intro stuff. Uh, I'm going to get to the housekeeping. I'm a little bit off today, if you haven't, uh, more than usual. Uh, I had a fever for the past week. I guess it was like a summer virus or something, or I don't know. I I was honestly wondering if I was going to get superpowers or turn into a zombie. Spoiler alert, neither happened. Uh, But it was crazy uh, as far as doing this podcast and because uh, I was able to experience like all levels of sleepless nights over the past like four or five nights. And it really helps me relate uh, back to my roots of, you know, I don't know. It was crazy. Like, uh, so you guys can relate to waking up at four in the morning, not being able to fall asleep or having a fever and being exhausted but not being able to fall asleep. But I um, I did notice that, ugh, I don't know how to describe this, like I can really see where this podcast comes from. Maybe it was in a feverish madness, but I kind of felt like there was a podcast go- episode going on in my head to try to lull me to sleep a couple times. Like there was one that was really strange involving Martin Freeman uh, I don't even know. It, it, it wasn't a dream because it was in that pre-dream state. It was very boring, even more boring than that, like where it wouldn't have been distracting for most people. But uh, 
I don't know if I have, I, have, I'm like, I guess I'm still feverish now because I'm not making any sense. But uh, I, I thought, I guess in my fevered state, I thought I would find something relatable about it. But yeah, uh, that's it. Uh, I guess I have brain damage possibly from this fever is maybe the thing. So that's it. Let's get on to the housekeeping. Housekeeping, our wonderful new theme is by Christopher over at Sounds Like an Earful podcast over at soundslikeanearful.com. If you have a chance, go over to his podcast and give it a listen from his website or look it up on iTunes, subscribe, review and rate it, or just say hi to Christopher and say, hey, thanks for this nice little sound in my ear. Sounds like an earful. Uh, No, thank you, Chris, so much if you are listening. And I highly encourage you guys to uh, check out his podcast. We're still catching up with saying thank yous to everybody that said hi while I was gone, uh, out of town. And then basically what happened was I I produced as many episodes as I could. Well, I, I produced three weeks' episodes before I left. I don't know why, where the three weeks came from, but whatever. So that's why I'm so far behind on saying thank yous and housekeeping. But now we're at Twitter. So I'm going to bang through this list because it's a big one because you guys are the best getting a hold of me on Twitter. Here's all the new people that said hi on Twitter. Riley, Tracy, Obadiah, Eduardo, Melanie, Yiran, Rad Rad, Anna Katarina, Katarina, Aaron, Ayanna Trone, Ian, Hey Jude, Evelyn, and Kristen. I think that's everybody. Riley, Tracy, Obadiah, Eduardo, Melanie, Iran, Radrad, Anna Katarina, Aaron, Ayanna Trone, Ian, Hey Jude, Evelyn, and Kristen. Thank you guys so much. All of you had wonderful, wonderful things to say to me. And I appreciate it. I really do. I appreciate your listening. And I appreciate the fact that you reached out to me to say hi. And, and keep it coming. Because also I have a list of people that I'm regularly messing around with on Twitter, regularly feeding me information, saying hi, commenting on episodes. Another thing I love is regular. Don't be a first-timer. You know, wham, bam, thank you for the podcast, man. I'm out. But people like Stacy, Bethany, Seven, Juan, Kyla, Damon, Shannon, Red Mailbox, Elf, Lady Broad, anybody else out there? that likes to say hi, hello, and interact with each other, whatever. We're all here. We're all in the same boat. We're a community. Starting to feel that way. I hope it feels that way for you. Definitely feels like uh, you guys are giving me back tenfold what I give out. And I don't know. Well, we're on, we're on the verge of something here. I'm not sure what. Well, I, I am sure what because... But I'm evil, so I'm like playing this out slowly. Like in five years, like I said, you'll be my servants. But currently, over the shorter 4.11-month plan, you know, this is like a positive vibration type thing. So let's keep it going. Again, thank you all. If I missed anybody, I apologize. All I can say to you is that... Um, I can relate. I've been forgotten many a time, too, and it's not intentional. And, and don't take it as uh, having any meaning about you. Sometimes things slip through the cracks by accident. I know when I get forgotten, I think it's confirmation that uh, 
and this isn't a joke or a lighthearted, but just me being real, is that, you know, it's not confirmation that I'm an awful person or worthless or, you know, just a, a, a demon type at the core. It's just these things happen, so I'm sorry. And But mostly, thank you for listening. Those of you that don't interact, that sit silently, as long as you're well-rested or as long as I'm vibrating your eardrums in some way that doesn't have negative consequences, thank you. All right, let's uh, keep moving here. So tonight we're going to be talking about Season 1, Episode 1, Game of Thrones, Winter is Coming, the first one ever. And I guess I'll do, we've got a lot of mini topics to cover, so it's a little bit different segment than uh, normal. Uh, just a lot of little things interested me. And I don't, I don't know how to do the episode running, because I can see if you don't watch Game of Thrones, it's it would be pretty boring, this episode rundown. But uh, whatever, we got to reestablish. So the, it opens, again, the pre-credit, a pre-credit sequence. Uh, with the Night's Watch coming out of the tunnel, we see that cold rolled steel. And I got a, I heard from Glittering Insanity, Stacy, and she she sent me a nice link to a discussion on Reddit. I think, no, yeah, to a discussion on Reddit about steel and Game of Thrones that I'm going to post in the show notes. Great stuff. Thanks, Stacy. Thanks, Reddit. Uh, but yeah, the Night's Watch they go through the tunnel. They had this nice little thing for torch storage. I thought that I don't know. I was like, man, it just reminded me of something like you're like, oh, I would have if I bought one of those, it would never get used. But for them, it's like so they roll out there, the three dudes, you know, White Walker situation. You guys all remember that. Very snowy, very beautiful, very um, eerie. Felt a little bit like the original Predator movie at that one point where the White Walkers kind of run in after the dude. And very animal-like sounds. Also, now knowing where we are, I was like, it, it wonders. It makes me wonder where we're going. But it was also like, wow, like uh, it, it really set you up uh, to be surprised in a different way of what was coming over the this season and all four seasons. Got a child with blue eyes. That was uh, seen that again. We get the Starks, winter is coming, John and Caitlin being cold to each other. We get a beheading, we get uh, little puppies, dead deer, a dead, uh, this little, you know, dead wolf. Jon Snow, get a dose of Jon Snow. Bells in King's Landing, Jamie and Cersei, you worry too much, you were never afraid. A lot of character introductions, which would be tough. I mean, messages. I guess uh, this isn't the best, but then because uh, I didn't actually write down the episode summary, I just wrote down my notes. But then you get the message arriving by the Raven. I like that uh, Ned and Caitlin have their little re- religious. Uh, it's like your gods with all the rules. But I guess basically what happens in this episode, instead of me just reading the notes, we meet the Starks. We meet. Jamie and Cersei, Robert Baratheon, meet Bran, Arya, Joff and the Hound. We see kind of Robert and um, Ned's friendship and the tension in uh, Robert and Cersei's marriage. 
We meet Tyrion. What better way? Drunken little lecher. Get a little hint of the Targaryens. They're all gone, but not all. And we travel out to Pentos where we meet our future Khaleesi. Her brother, Ilario, I think is the dude's name. Sansa, her mother, talking about her marrying Joffrey. It's the only thing she ever wanted. Jon Snow kissing up to Ben Jen. Tyrion and Jon kind of... Tyrion giving him advice. Wear your bastard ship like armor. Get our first case of Little Dove. When Cersei and Caitlin are talking about Sansa, she calls her a little dove. Getting da- Jamie and Ned talking trash to each other. Who but you can protect the king? Your father and brother rode south on the king's command once. Then we get some more of the, Do- the Dothraki show up with this wedding. Omens for war. We meet Ser Jorah. We see our first Khaleesi slow walk after, uh, I don't know when that is. Get some dragon eggs in there. It's a boar hunt and then uh, the thing with the window. But basically, uh, let's see, to sum it up because that was really boring. Um, so we meet everybody. And what happens is you meet the Starks, who are this family living in the north with Big Ned at the head. He's like this honorable man. Next thing you know, they find out the king's coming to town. Then they find out the king's hand's dead, who's like the king's right-hand man, that king's hand, who was this old guy who everybody liked, John Aaron. And then the king, who used to be, him and Ned are old buddies. He's like, I want you to be the hand. Then we find out the hand might have been murdered. And then we got this crafty brother and sister, Jamie and Cersei. We also meet uh, Ned's kids. And Cersei and King Robert's kid, Joff, who's kind of a punk, and he's got this guy, the Hound, working for him. And then we shoot out to uh, Pentos, where we meet uh, our Khaleesi and her brother, who's a jerk, and some weirdo who's uh, shopping him around town, who we, you know, slimeball, obviously. Then we meet Khal Drogo and the Thothraki at some point, Sir Jorah. And and then uh, we find out that uh, Jamie and Cersei are having a, a sexual relationship, which is not good. So a lot of intrigue is introduced, a lot of mystery, and a lot of interesting characters. I mentioned Tyrion, but um, he's, I don't know if he was involved in anything other than witty dialogue. So, yeah, that's the summary of the episode. I'm sorry that... Uh, I wish it would be, I, I don't know, it was a setup. It's the first episode, you know. And But there was a lot of little things that drew my attention. So let's get into it, shall we? All right, first question I have is why do the Night's Watch wear black? Because I was like, what are these guys thinking? They're supposed to be in the snow. Why don't they wear white? But, of, of course, that's as, I'm just like a critic. So I didn't actually analyze it or think about it. But I went over to... Uh, our bodies over at A-S-O-I-A-F, A Song of Ice and Fire, the wiki. That's my favorite wiki. And they kind of talked about it, and we didn't have any 100% solid answers, but one was like, uh, black is easier to care for. You don't got to wash it or dye it or whatever. Black uh, material or bleach it uh, and... It absorbs heat, so if you're cold, that's the best color to wear. If you're at night, 
You're going to be invisible. And, you know, if you're a ranger, a lot of people said you're not going to be out in a field of snow anyway. What are you, a bonehead? I think uh, symbolically it helps you to accept that you're in the Night's Watch. You're in the Night's Watch. What is that, like a literal literary usage or a narrative storytelling device? It's nice because it creates a contrast between the king's guard. But there's also people that put like, you know, that they were goth or they loved heavy metal or a lot of funny stuff too. But so that was like my first thing that came off this episode. Why are the Night's Watch wearing black? Probably common sense is all it comes down to. Next up, who's this dude? This young uh, guy leading this party of three out, this opening of the episode. These two obviously more experienced guys that don't exactly have a respect for him. And also, I had just gotten someone about two months ago to get into Game of Thrones, and they were like, wow, this is really striking to me and set me up because this guy, he's a handsome guy, and he seemed like he could be developed into a great character, and then... You know, he doesn't even make it to the opening, end of the opening of the show. But it made me think, like, who is this guy? And I knew, I think they say Royce in there somewhere. And that led me back to last season, Mockingbird, with this Lord Royce, who is a pompous ass. Uh, forgive my uh, French. So I was like, oh, this must be the one kid he sent to the wall. Because that sounds I was like, oh, I remember when you stopped by my house. So I looked into it. Yeah, it says youngest son. And, uh, yeah, they did, Sansa had a crush on him, turns out. Guy seems like, uh, he had a, he had an attitude because he was a, a royal. And I guess he went to the Night's Watch because his, you know, there's the official story that it was like, okay, he's not going to inherit anything because he's the third youngest son. son. He's not going to inherit any, anything or have any wealth. So why not join the Night's Watch? And then his, brought his, him and his dad went. So he got like in. At a higher level, they're like, okay, you're not just going to be a regular Night's Watch dude. You'll be one that gets to, uh, you know, boss people around a little bit while they mutter under their breath. Now, that's the official story. I'll also, And that makes sense, and it's part of it, but it's also like, one, your father's a jerk. Two, your bro- his brothers are probably jerks, but maybe not. Maybe they're nice, and he's the jerk. But whatever, I don't like Lord Lord Rice. Let's just be clear like that. And I don't like his son in this episode. Two, maybe he couldn't cut it in the real world. Maybe there's some secret crime he did. Also, there's the crazy-ass queen. So, But it seems like he might have joined while John Aaron was still alive. So <sighs> I don't know then. Because everybody loves John Aaron. Uh, that's another thing that I didn't even look into. But he's like one of these beloved people. So I wonder what John Aaron thought of this guy. But anyway, that's who he is. He's Lord Royce's third son, uh, Waymar. And, uh, yeah, not much else to worry about him because he's gone. Okay, next thing up is these titles, the opening sequence titles that everybody loves to watch. I, I actually will do the opening song another time, but I, I love the titles. I don't fast forward through them. I prefer to enjoy the spectacle of the music and the and the visuals but who did them so i found this great forbes article that i'll put in the show notes called uh how the innovative game of thrones opening credits were built and ends up this guy angus wall from the rock paper scissors groups worked with hbo to do these credits now i knew the credits uh changed but they change every episode i guess 
with uh, with where, where the episode is going to be there. I did not know they changed every single episode. So that's just my ignorance. But so this guy had already – he had created the uh, – and, and his team have cre- had created the uh, opening episodes for Carnival, which – they won an Emmy for that. Yeah, he had won an Emmy for that. And David Benioff was like really pleased because he said they had already had an opening – a conception of the opening sequence, which was stock and mundane, but they just turned things over to Wall, who created something wholly original and daring. Quote, Our biggest contribution to the sequence was getting out of his way and making sure no one else interfered with his process. So how do they do this? How do they construct it? They have three months to produce the credits and create the sequences for all ten episodes in one batch. Credits change weekly. As campaigns expand or end in ignoble defeat, and every location in the episode must appear on the atlas. After shooting Rhapsody season, Wall and his team receive a list of fictional places to include, details on where the episodes were shot, and so like so the geographical clues help inspire the Westeros map. Wall's team pours over conceptual art that informs set construction, and they watch the pilot before they work. I guess that first episode. Using only pencil and paper, an art artist transforms the city into a clockwork model with mechanical diagrams detailing how, detailing how each city will build itself in the sequence. And then the designs are handed off to the computer graphics department where, the, you know, each member of the team takes over and does their thing. I think this is a quote from Wall. I think the level of detail is quite exceptional. It's not something that can be faked. You actually have to go in the computer and build these working mechanisms, he says. Some people have actually thought that we built those titles out of wood and metal, but they're all done on a computer to emulate real physical textures and materials. It requires a collaboration of all three branches of Rock, Paper, Scissors group. Elastic does the design, which constitutes the bulk of the project. A52 does the computer graphics, and Rock, Paper, Scissors does the editing. So that's it. I'll try to find some more articles, but basically... Uh, Angus Wall and his team at Rock, Paper, Scissors group is the ones behind this beautiful opening sequence we see every week. So congratulations to them. I don't know if they won the Emmy this week, but they pro- they should have. So, yeah, thank you for a great opening title sequence. All right, who directed this episode was Tim Van Patten. And, of course, that name rang a bell. But for more than one reason, I'd already known Tim Van Patten was like this great HBO director because I had looked him up for some other reason. But then I was like, I, I was mistakenly thinking that he was Dick Van Patten's son, but he's Dick Van Patten's brother, I believe. His half-brother. Dick Van Patten of Eight is Enough fame. Eight is enough to fill our lives with love. Which was a show that I... I watched some reruns of that, like when I'd be homesick with the fever. I didn't, I didn't see any this week, but like when I was a kid. And I, I liked that show. I never liked it enough to see a ton of episodes. Took place in Sacramento. Weird, interesting place to set a TV sitcom, but whatever. So, and then, oh, Tim Van Patten's also the brother of, or the, uh, so then he's also related to Dick Van Patten's son, Vince Van Patten, who's one of the people that helped during the, bring poker back into, you know, when all poker was popular on TV. 
Vince Van Patten was there, and he did a great job doing kind of color commentary of poker. He still does it. I had seen, seen him the other day on something. So cheers to Dick. Cheers to Vince. But especially cheers to Tim, because Tim's been one of these directors working with HBO for a long time. He actually went to, well, he went to Massapequa High School. I know somebody that went there. He was in the same class as Brian Seltzer. In 2001, Vince, in 2001, Tim, along with Terrence Winter, won the Writers Guild Award and the Edgar Award for the uh, Sopranos episodes Pine Barren, directed by Steve Buscemi. Buscemi? Buscemi? Steve Buscemi? Uh, Vance Patton also directed an episode called Long-Term Parking. I think the Pine Barrens is the one that's like a little bit like Miller's Crossing, maybe. Uh, so Bant and Van Patten directed Long-Term Parking, which won an Emmy for Best Writing in a Dramatic Series. He's been nominated for other Emmys for Sopran directing for Sopranos, Game of Thrones, Boardwalk Empire... And he won in 2012 for, it looks like a boardwalk. Maybe that's where I heard of him first was Boardwalk Empire. Though I should have heard of him. I should have heard him by a name on the tip of my tongue. But he's got a great body of work. So a lot of your favorite HBO shows, Deadwood, Sopranos, Pacific, Boardwalk Empire, Rome, The Wire, Sex and the City. They all have episodes directed by Tim Van Patten. So cheers, Tim, and thank you for your hard work and dedication to your craft. And keep keep it coming, buddy. Next up, there's a lot of, uh, I noticed in Winterfell, there's a lot of stones, like standing stones that are like six to ten feet high. And that made me think of Stonehenge. And then Stonehenge makes me think of Avaberry, which is this uh, place near Stonehenge. I didn't get to go to Stonehenge when I was in England. This is probably like a long time ago, but um, I did get to go to Avaberry, which was awesome. And Avaberry is a Neolithic henge monument containing three stone circles in southwest England. It's unique among megalithic monuments. It creates, contains the largest stone circle in Europe. It was one of the best-known best prehistoric sites in Britain, tourist attraction, and religiously important. Constructed around 2600 BCE. Comprises a large hinge. That's a bank with a ditch. A large stone outer circle. And two separate small stone circles. Now there's a whole history here. It'll be in the show notes. But the cool thing about Avaberry is. And that, is that. There's a town. So like. You should go there because there's like – I didn't get to go to the other sites in the area, but there's Silberry Hill. Stonehenge isn't that far away. I think there's one other thing. There's like one other thing nearby. Beautiful countryside. But the thing about Avaberry is you can walk around and look at the stones. You can slap them, hug them, take your picture next to them. It's not like uh, – what people say about Stonehenge is that it's very touristy. And there's a fence, so you, the dreams of climbing to the top of stuff and waving from the top of Stonehenge, those aren't going to come true. Off of Barry, they, I think they frown on that kind of stuff of climbing on them. But at least you can stand next to the rocks. There's a restaurant there, I think, a pub. There's a whole little town, beautiful place. And you can, it's bigger. You can walk around. I don't know. 
I just really enjoyed it. My memory is not so fresh, but it made me think, like, are, I guess, it is like the old gods some sort of paganism? I haven't heard anybody talk. They're talking about trees, not about standing rocks, or are those just random standing rocks in Winterfell? I don't know, but it made me think of Hoppaberry. Another thing that caught my curiosity was these, uh, they, they always are having the, the young women uh, doing some sort of knitting type thing. And again, I guess this is a guy, I don't know. Like, I was like, what the heck are they doing with those wooden circles? And I'm pretty sure maybe my mom had one or my sister, but I'm not, po- I, I know we didn't live in a castle where they were just in a room doing that. So I was like, is that stitching or knitting or what? And it took me a really long time because I kept doing these searches with what are they doing with these circle, wooden circles. And so it's called an embroidery, embroidery, an embroidery hoop. It's used to keep fabric taut while doing embroidery or needlework. So they're doing embroidery or needlework. Embroidery hoop or tambour frame consists of a pair of concentric circles or elliptical rings which they can be tightened with a metal screw, and the artisan can reposition the hoop as needed while working over a large piece of fabric. So that's it, though. They're embroidery hoops. So, or what I say? So it didn't really answer my question of what are the girls learning, and I tried to figure that out. Like, are they learning embroidery or stitching? And now I'm like, was that what Sansa was doing in Mockingbird before she came out with that? Bada boom, mockingbird dress or whatever, uh, because I don't, I don't know where where she had the whole feather type thing. I don't know, um, but those things are called embroidery hoops. So answer one question is answered. <laughs> okay, so next is uh, decapitate well beheadings because we had a little beheading action. Beheadings typically refer, refers to the act of intentional decapitation as a means of execution. Uh, Someone that carries it out is called a headsman. Decapitation has been used as a form of capital punishment for millennia. The terms capital offense, capital crime, capital punishment derive from the Latin caput, head, referring to punishment for serious offenses. Well, I didn't know that. Involving the forfeiture of the head, i.e. death by beheading. Decapitation by sword or axe, a military weapon as well, was sometimes considered an honorable way, this is from Wikipedia, to die for an aristocrat, 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 that might not be, I don't think cats would like that, um, who presumably being a warrior could often expect to die by the sword in any event. In England, it was considered a privileges of noblemen to be beheaded. Oh, the privilege. This would be distinguished from a dishonorable death on the gallows or burning at a stake. Yeah, I guess I'd take a beheading myself. In medieval England, the punishment for high treason was to be hanged, drawn, and quartered. Oh, yeah, I'd prefer beheading. But in the case of nobles and knights, it was commuted to simple beheading. Female, commoner traitors were burned at the stake. In countries where beheading was the usual means of capital punishment, such as Scandinavia, the noblemen would be beheaded with a sword, symbolizing their class as a military caste. 
cast. They say casp. However, in some countries such as China, decapitation is considered as a less honorable capital punishment than the gallows or poisoning because of differing, differing cultural values. Painlessness. If a headsman axe or sword has a sharp, was sharp and his aim precise, decapitation was quick and was presumed to be painless form of death. If the instrument was blunt or clumsy, well, that Stark's not blunt or clumsy, so let's not go there. The person to be executed was advised to give a gold coin to the headsman to assure he did that job with care. To ensure the blow would be fatal, executioner swords were usually blade-heavy two-handed swords, much like Ned's. That's a sword, which I'm feverish, so I don't know the name. I think it's like an England, a bearded axe was used for beheadings. With a blade extending downward from the tip of the shaft. You can go a lot of places with this. You can learn about guillotines if you wish later on. But let's keep moving. Now, there's also in this episode a lot of message sending by ravens, I believe. So it made me look up. I've always been impressed that this whole carrier, you know, pigeons or in the this show. I'm not sure if ravens, I didn't look up if ravens could actually carry messages or crows. I think ravens. But carrier pigeons are what were most famous for that. And uh, the sport of flying homing pigeons was well established as early as 3,000 years ago, according to Wikipedia. They're used to proclaim the winner of the Olympics. Messenger pigeons were used as early as 1150 in Baghdad and later by Genghis Khan. By 1167, a regular service between Baghdad and Syria had been established. In 1818, a great pigeon race called the Belgian Concourse took place at Brussels. In 1860, Paul Reuter, who founded Reuter's press agency, used a fleet of 45 per pigeons to deliver stock and news prices between Brussels and Anchen, the terminal of the early telegraph lines. The outcome of the Battle of Waterloo was first delivered by pigeon to England. During the Franco-Prussian War, pigeons were used to carry mail between the besieged Paris and French-occupied territory. Historically, pigeons carried messages only one way to their home. They had to be transported manually before another flight. However, by placing food at one location and their home at another, pigeons have been trained to fly back and forth up to twice a day, reliably, covering flights up to 160 kilometers, 100 miles. That's crazy. You pigeons, if you're listening, you've got a lot to be proud of. Or I guess you're being, expl- if, if you want, if you like flying. The reliability has lent itself to occasional utes on mail mail routes. With training, they can carry up to 75 grams, 2.5 ounces on their backs. So that's carrier pigeons. And we got pigeon post over here. Pigeon post was the use of homing pigeons to carry messages. Pigeons were effective as messengers due to their natural homing abilities. Their ability to go home, I guess. Pigeons were transported to their destination in cages where they'd be attached with messages, and then naturally the pigeon would fly back to its home where the owner could read his mail. As a method of communication, it's as old as the ancient Persians, from whom the art of training birds... Like, who came up, man? From whom the art of training the birds probably came. This is the kind of stuff that does make me wonder if aliens were like, hey, those birds can find their way home. 
or maybe it's just people that were friendly to birds. Romans used pigeon messengers to aid 2,000 years ago. Julius Caesar used pigeons as messengers in his conquest of Gaul. Messenger pigeons were used in Baghdad. Before the telegraph, it was in vogue among stockbrokers and financiers, as we said with, uh, what's his name? They were using the Siege of Paris, 70 to 71. So then, then my next question, okay, so they can fly maybe 100 miles, and then how fast can they fly? According to this, uh, according to a couple things on Google, maybe like 30 to 50 miles. There's some that says they can fly up to 90 miles an hour in a race, but somewhere between 30 and 50 miles an hour, that's freaking crazy, especially because they're going as the bird flies. So, pigeons, I salute you, and ravens. Hold on. I looked it up. It doesn't look like ravens really deliver messages, just pigeons. So pigeons, you don't got to worry about the ravens stealing your thunder. They'll just bully you, as they always have been. Next thing that caught my eye was when Caitlin was talking about making sure there was enough candles for Tyrion to read by. And then I was like, oh, what about, like, lumens and lux? What does all that stuff mean? How many candles is it good to read by? And I found this thing very boring and very dense, called Footnote, Foot Candles and Lux. It's over at www.mts.net slash a bunch of stuff. It's copyrighted in 1999 by Bill Williams. Thank you, Bill. Footnotes, Foot Candles and Lux for Architectural Lighting. Luminance Introduction. One of the factors when designing architectural lighting systems is luminance. Luminous is a measure of the amount of light falling on its surface. It's defined as the density of luminous flux incident on a circuit surface. It is the quotient of the luminous flux by the area of the surface where the latter is uniformly illuminated. E equals DF slash DA. One foot candle is the illuminance at a point on the surface which is one foot from and perpendicular to a uniform point source of one candela. Sweet candela. One lux is the luminance at the same point at a distance of one meter from the source. One lumen uniformly distributed over one square foot of surface provides an illumination of one foot candle. If you work in feet, your results will be in foot candles. If you work in meters, like sane people, your results will be in lux. Formally, the term illumination was used for illuminance. How much light is enough, you know? People in the interior modern workplace or home, illuminance levels commonly range between 10 and 100 foot candles or more. And exterior situations levels may range from 100 to 10,000 foot candles or more. Good lighting depends on more than just luminance levels. The direction, distribution, color, temperature, and color rendering index of the source all contribute to effective lighting and visibility. The task, reflectance, and contrast also contribute greatly the termination of target and luminance levels are generally considered, however, to be a starting point of any effective lighting design. Luminance levels are generally dictated by the needs of a visual task. Typically, the more light available, the easier it is to perform a task. But how much light is enough? Luminance levels are 
influenced by the details of the task. A. Reflectance and contrast, task and background. The I, age and condition. Importance of speed and accuracy. It's important today, luminance levels. It's important today that the lighting designer provide an appropriate lighting level for the required task. It is also equally important to not underlight a task. There is generally little value to underlighting a task where human performance is concerned. The electrical energy saved is often offset by a greater, far greater loss in performance or productivity. Blah, blah, blah. Let's check since IES recommendations. Since 1958, the Illuminate, Illuminating Engineering Society. Illuminating Engineering Society. I thought they were in one of the conspiracy theories. Has published Illuminance recommendations in table form. These tables cover both generic tasks and hundreds of specific tasks and activities. All tasks fall into one of nine luminance categories, covering from 20 to 20,000 lux, 2 to 2,000 foot candles. These categories are known as A through I. Each provide a range of three luminance values, low, mid, and high. Activity, public spaces with dark surroundings. I don't know what that means. I would like making love in it, but that's 20, 20 to 50 lux and two to five foot candles. Simple orientation for short visits, 50 to 100 or five to 10. I'll just do Lux. It'll be quicker. <sighs> Working spaces where visual tasks are only occasionally performed. That's not reading. That's one to 200 Lux. Performance of visual tasks with high contrast or large size. Two to 500 Lux. We're still not there. Performance of visual tasks, medium contrast or small size. Uh, now we're getting there. 500 to 1,000 Lux. Performance of visual tasks of low contrast or very small size. We need a thousand to two thousand lux. Oh wait, but wait, maybe not. Maybe more. Performance of visual tasks of low contrast or very small size over a prolonged period. Like how long is Tyrion going to be reading for? That's two thousand to five thousand lux, people. And then you get into the performance of very pro prolonged and exacting visual tasks. How hard is he going to be reading? That's 5,000 to 10,000. I think the last one's probably, well, it depends on the book. Actually, these books aren't like uh, our books. Performance of very special visual tasks of extremely low contrast. Like what if the book isn't well made? And it's not in an exact language. Tyrion's kind of, wow, so you're talking... A minimum, I'm going to say 5,000 lux we need. Oh, wait, now we got other factors. You got table A. You got to adjust for occupant ages. Um, take one away for under 40 or zero for 40 to 55. So I think Tyrion's probably he's around 40. Maybe, I don't know. Important of speed and or accuracy. Not important, important or critical. I'd say important. That's a zero weighting factor. Reflectance of task background. More than 70%, 30 to 70% or less than 30. I'd say 30 to 70%. So 
So we could go on all day with this, but I think my final recommendation for well, let me let me look up how to convert it, and I'll be right back. <sighs> okay, so I went and did some more research, try to find just the answer to the question, like how many candles do they need so Tyrion can read? And I found another article over at theledlight.com slash lumens. It'll be in the show notes because I'm not sure of the copyright because it gets... Uh, about halfway through, it says, more confusion, more candle power. Candle power is a way of measuring how much light is produced by a light bulb LED or in a carbon arc spotlight. How much light fall? Is it a measure of how much light falls on the object from some distance away? No. That's illuminescence. Is it a measure of how well we see that object illuminated by a light source? No. That's something altogether different. Nowadays, we use the term candela instead of candle power. Candela, is that right? It's the measure of how much light the bulb produces measured at the bulb, rather than how much falls upon the thing you want to light up. Further, further confusing the matter is the beam focus. I'm sorry, Caitlin. Holy river running tullies and... That's how much candle power can be focused using a refractor reflector lens assembly. Obviously, if you project all your light bulbs' intensity on a given spot or towards something, it'll be more intense. And here comes the confuser. A candle power is a unit of measure is not the same as foot candle. A candle power is a measurement of light at the source, not at the object you light up. And a candela is a metric equivalent of the light output of that one candle based on metric calculations. And since using the candle is rather imprecise, that definition was amended to replace a light source using carbon filaments with a very specific light source. See the following. The candela is the luminescence intensity in a given direction of a source that emits monochromatic radiation of a frequency 540 by 1012 hertz. And has a radiant intensity in that direction of 1 263rd watt per stradian. Stradian. If this is the above, is from the National Institute of Standards. Reference on. I can't get. I can't involve the Khaleesi in this. Candle power is a measure of light taken at the light source, not at the target. Foot candles tell us how much of that light is directed at the object we want to illuminate. Now let's convert the lumens, the metric unit of light measurement, to candle power. We understand that a candle radiates light equally in all directions. Its output in this consideration is not focused by any mechanical means, lenses, or reflectors. Pretend that for pretend for a moment that a transparent sphere, one meter in radius, surrounds your candle. We know that there are twelve point five seven square meters of surface area in such a spear. You remember your solid geometry glasses? No. That's one candle, one candle power. That one candle, one candle power, candela, is illuminating equally the entire surface of that sphere. The amount of light energy then reflected from that surface is defined thusly. The amount of energy emanating from one square meter of the surface is one lumen. And if we decrease the size of a sphere to one foot radius, we increase the reflected energy 
12.57 times of that which fell on the square meter area. Lux is an abbreviation for meter lumens per square meter. Foot candles equal the amount of lumens per square foot of area. So one candle power equivalent equals 12.57 lumens. And for you figuring out LED equivalents, first you must know how many lumens your LEDs produce. Then divide that value by 12.57 and you have the candle power of the LED. If you don't have foot candles, remember foot candles are illuminescence. And we are measuring radiance, certainly. Okay, um, I have no idea when, so you need a lot of candles. I'd say 10 candles. No, 20, like so, but, you know, put some in a box for him in case he needs them later. Give him five and have 15 underneath. How's that? Or you could do 12.57, 24. Yeah, two dozen. Two dozen candles. Oh, man, that took a lot out of me. The next thing is uh, Big Robert Baratheon talks about how long that's been since they've seen each other. And they've put on some weight. And I was like, okay, as we get older... There's an inevitable weight gain that comes with aging, I've heard. And so I tried to search for that. Like, I mean, obviously, lifestyle is a huge factor, especially in Robert's case, because uh, he's kind of, he's not totally sedentary because he's out um, riding horses and stuff, but he's doing a lot of drinking, overeating. He's probably sleeping a lot. I mean, yeah, well, but, but so I found this article over at, Houston.com, Hugh, H-U-G-H-S-T-O-N. Uh, it's by William E. Roundtree, MD out of Columbus, Georgia. Why do we gain weight as we age? As we age, a decrease in our physical abilities leads to a decrease in our, meta- meta- in our met- metabolic rate, the amount of energy used in a given period, which in turn contributes to weight gain. Physiological changes that accompany increasing age affect the body's composition and caudal pulmonary functions, thus reducing our ability to work and exercise and lose weight. Genetics, muscle mass, gender, calorie consumption versus expenditure and lifestyle are all factors in weight gain. Changes occurring with age. A decline in our physical ability starts around age 30 and continues through life. Reaches a plateau around the age of 60, 70. After that plateau, a shorter decline follows. The rate of decline varies with our individual level of fitness as well as our lifestyle. The speed at which our nerves conduct impulses declines approximately 15%, resulting in a decreased reaction time and slowness in performing tasks. Maximum breathing capacity decreases approximately 40% during this period. Individuals with lung disease suffer more significant cardiovascular function declines. One half of 1% each year starting at 30. Great. It's no coincidence that many world-class and endurance athletes begin gradually leaving their sport at this age. There's a 40 to 50% reduction. I wonder how Robert's probably 40, I'd say. 50? Probably 50? 40? He looks about 65. There's a 40-50% reduction in muscle mass during this period with a similar decline in bone mass. 
there's simul increase in body fat in both men and women. The metabolic rate also declines with age. This decline is mostly affected by muscle mass. Regular exercise helps preserve muscle mass, particularly muscles loading exercise such as weight training, walking, and physically challenging occupations. Behaviors such as frequent dieting have shown to affect the resting metabolic rate and your resting metabolic rate and your weight. Individuals who diet frequently have significant decline in their basal metabolic rate. This decline is prolonged and sustained for several months. It cannot be attributed to that. Expected from a loss in muscle mass or fat-free mass. Periods of extreme starvation can produce... Oh, don't do that. Not even Robert. 45% decline of metabolic system. Studies have shown that caloric restrictions in short-lived animal species not only causes a decrease in metabolic rate, but also an increase in lifespan. Some people say, I don't know if I buy that. Studies are now underway to evaluate caloric restrictions in humans and longevity. Physical activity refers to body movements that result in the production of energy. The type, frequency, and duration of activity as well as the rate of progress should be considered when choosing an exercise program. Physical activity has been shown to decrease the occurrence of some chronic diseases, there's a large body of evidence that the risk of death from disease is decreased in individuals who are physically active. The strongest evidence of this has been shown for coronary artery disease. There's moderate evidence that physical activity decreases hypertension, obesity, colon cancer, non-insulin-dependent diabetes, osteoporosis. Our organ systems, such as the visual, auditory, and endocrine systems, appear to decline with age. Decline in the water content of our ligaments and tendons contributes to inflexibility of the old people. Sorry, groan. It may further limit our physical abilities. However, the basal metabolic rate is clearly affected most by the decline in muscle mass, individual's lifestyle, underlying health. Despite these limitations, a decline in all physical abilities is not inevitable. Studies show that healthy individuals of all ages can increase their muscular strength and endurance to a proportionate degree. Unfortunately, there's not an age-related decline in appetite, so that's about it on that. So another thing was they visited the tomb of Ned's sister, Robert's uh, true love, Leanna Stark. And one thing I noticed, he put a feather or touched a feather that was in her hand, and that made me really curious. What's up with the feather? What does it symbolize? So I did some digging. It turns out the feather, let me see. As part of her their romance, Robert would bring her feathers from an exotic southern bird. During his visit, he places one in the hand of her statue. So that was interesting. Very uh, says a lot about, makes Robert out to be this softy, at least when it comes to her. So then I... Figured might as well tell you more about Lyanna. Lyanna Stark is an unseen character in Game of Thrones. She is deceased when the events begin. She's the youngest sister of Eddard Stark. Her kidnapping by Rhaegar Targaryen contributed to the outbreak of Robert's Rebellion. How she died isn't fully explained. Lyanna Stark was the only daughter of Lord Rickard Stark. Rickard was the head of House Stark the Lord Paramount of the North. Lyanna had three brothers, Brandon, Eddard, and Benjen. His father, Elaine, 
to set up her and Robert's marriage, but then she got abducted for reasons unknown by Rhaegar Targaryen, the heir to the Iron Throne, who took her south and hit her in Dorne. Her brother Brandon, who had been on the way to River Run to wed Caitlin Tully, instead went to King's Landing to demand Rhaegar's arrest and punishment. King Aerys II Targaryen had him come, had him and all his companions charged with treason. He demanded all their fathers, including, including Lord Rickard Stark, come to King's Landing, and promised they would receive a trial. Instead, he had them all burned, alive. Except for Brandon, who strangled himself trying to save his father. This sparked the uprising known as Robert's Rebellion. John Aaron was commanded to arrest and turn over his wards, Robert Baratheon and Eddard Stark. All three rose in rebellion, along with Hooster Tully of River Run after John Aaron and Eddard Stark married his daughters. The war saw the House Targaryen almost completely destroyed and Robert installed as king. During the war, Lyanna died from unknown causes in Eddard's arm after her rescue. As per her request, she was buried next to her brother Brandon in the crypts at Winterfell. Robert continued to mourn her despite becoming king and marrying Cersei Lannister. Robert was angry at Rob Eddard was angry at Robert since he felt that Tywin Lannister and his army also ought to face justice for the sack of King's Landing. Friendship was rekindled over the mutual grief for Lyanna. So, Leanna Stark, folks. All right, it's time for me to say my prayers. Crone, sweet crone. Miller, Smith, Barky, Jester God. Jumble servant, I'm calling, call, you know, checking in on you guys. I know we had the big conference call last week. Also, know you're gods, so you're not like people, so you might not, you might, with this whole bending of the universes and all this trans metaverta stuff. I know you guys won't be confused that I'm talking to you now. This whole flexibility of time type thing, but uh well I don't I mean I don't know if you guys knew, but as we left off with the big conference call, um you know I had all the tasks set out for you guys. Uh Jester, you're supposed to revitalize kinda the Hound and um, that giant dude, Mag the Mighty, and then Miller, you were going to grind him up, and Smith, you were going to melt him down spirit-wise, and, and uh, you know, just the Hound, and we are going to put in Mag the Mighty and then deal with the dragons. But you guys know none of that happened. And but what you don't, I mean, I don't know if you know, but just like all good plans and, se- like, seasons... I guess it was weird because my season ended, it didn't get recorded, and now it's getting recorded after it ended, but there's got to be like a cliffhanger, so the cliffhanger happened when you guys, after we made the big plans, but it didn't air, which is strange, but, so we had everything set up, and then I was like, all right, I'm going to sleep, you know, I'm going to sleep tonight, I had a couple uh, ales, and I was dancing at this, so I guess I made a bit of a show, and... Oh, man. And I, was, I guess I was telling everyone my plan, maybe. And I don't know. So what happened was the next day I woke up and I was in a cave. I had gone to sleep. 
Um, I, th- I, I don't know. I was like, where am I? And next thing I know, who walks in but the the fake hound, not the real hound, the fake hound who I'd been hanging out with. You know, I was kind of his, he called me his page boy and go boy and stuff. And so oh, it was him and it was Cat Stevens. Yeah. And they said that they had left Aristotle back at wherever they left him. And his side, I don't know, I can't remember again what Aristotle's got for, out for me because I like Aristotle and stuff, but he wants to take me out. But, of course, the old. this is mostly the old, the fake hound looking for vengeance. And then Cat Stevens wanted to steal my fantasy fiction time machine. So they had the jump on me. I assumed they had already found my fantasy fiction, Bruce Bolton fantasy fiction time machine that can transfer some metaverse and powered by flayed men in my room of Bruce Bolton. And I was just like, oh, man, I'm... And the fake hound thought my, he listened, he must have, I think he even listened in. Oh, no way, Cat Stevens, he had some sort of recorder. Like he had somehow recorded my prayer from last week. And they'd found my plan. And so they they ground up the hound for real. The, the original hound, the good, cool hound. And Mag the Mighty. And then they had a porridge and they made me eat it. For real. Um, it was awful. And then I got a wicked fever, and I've been sick for like a week. Uh, but I thought I was going to die. And they said, you know, wait till Aristotle gets here, man. And they said, you know, where's the fantasy fiction time machine? And I was like, oh, they don't have it. And he said, uh, you know, it's uh, round. And uh, they said, you know, we're going to mess you up. I'm like, how are you going to mess me up worse? You just made me eat like a... Uh, a giant man and a giant giant. I don't even know how long they've been sitting around unrefrigerated. I mean, at least Mag the Mighty was in cold, but the Hound wasn't. And I was like, I don't even know what time travel. Oh, just I don't even want to think about it anymore. I could already feel like germs going through my bloodstream at this point. And Cat Stevens even talk in in this situation, and. Uh, the hound, he was so mad, and he was talking about how I turned the gods against him. And, and he actually, you guys must have got those boots for me because he had those boots on. So he's pacing back and forth, telling me what a piece of junk I am. And Cat Stevens just mugging me. Like, I think Cat Stevens must be best friends with Aristotle. Like, he's like Aristotle's tough guy. I'm not even sure if it's a new name, and I don't want to offend him by saying it, but... Um, I can't remember what it is. Sorry. And then he was, he he was, Cassie was kicked me in the stomach. And I was like, thanks, because then I got rid of a little bit of the ground, uh, hound porridge, Mag the Mighty porridge. And, and actually by grinding it up, I think like the, the, uh, it, it, it didn't taste so bad, but just the thought about it was bad. But so, God, so I was like, well, I can't, you know, I felt low. I was ready to give up. And I knew this Aristotle was going to be coming for me. But, uh, and I was already feeling the effects of this stew of uh, stuff they made me eat. But I was trying to think fast. And I actually have, so I have the Roots Bolton Fantasy Fiction time machine. 
which is real. But then I also have like this um, tree stump I found that I keep hidden. Uh, it's like this old tree stump. And then I found some other, like a wooden door at this abandoned, um, this abandoned, whatever you call it, shed or something. And I put a door on the tree stump. And then the other side I put, like I took took uh, some shingles and I put it, so it's like a, it's like a little room with a door. And I can rock it back and forth since it's a tree stump, it's up vertical. And how do I put this? Without being embarrassing, I like to call that my um, uh, maiden love machine. Is what I call it, and I have a mattress in there of uh, rags and stuff like that. And I don't actually do anything weird in there, but I just pretend that I'm me and the maiden are in there, and this is where I take her. And it's a it's pretend. So it's like much more elegant, Maiden, if you're listening. Uh, it's just practice, kind of. So it would be much more elegant, obviously, once I get myself back on my feet uh, and have a real love machine. Because it would, it would uh, the power of our lovemaking would power the, the rocking of the, which would, it would be like a self, wouldn't be self-perpetuating, but as long as we're making sweet love, Maiden, Plus, you're a goddess, so it's got to have some extra charge to it. Um, but so I have that thing, and um, I, I was like, well, I could tell them about that. So I told them that's a Bruce Bolton. I was like, that's where it is. And I uh, go ahead and take it. I'm beaten. And then I really started to get sick. And at first they thought I was faking because I was, like, sweating. I'm still sweating now. It's embarrassing a bit, but... Yeah, and then I, like, started, like, I got the chills and then the hots and then the chills. And then Cat Stevens was like, what are we going to do? What are we going to do? And then it was, like, classic movie trope. Him and the Hound started fighting because Cat Stevens was more worried about what Aristotle was going to do. And the fake Hound was more worried about what the fake Hound was going to do. And then, um, so fake Hound went off to get the, uh, my other fantasy fiction time machine. Sorry, guys, I drifted off while I was thinking about the hound. and So I'm not sure because the next thing that happened was so the hound left. He went to go to the fake fantasy fiction time machine, which was the pretend fantasy made in lovemaking machine. And I was there with Cat Stevens, and then things got so blurry. And, uh, oh, God, so I just want to thank you for bringing me through. I, I can't – I'll try to bring together my memories because I know I got out of it. I know it was by your will be done. I'm pretty sure what ha- – I'm pretty sure – wait, was that when there was – oh, that was, was – oh, wait, that was when the Drogo showed up and chased Cat Stevens away. So that must have been you guys at work. And then what we'll, we'll, – I think I was so hot. Or was that part of my fever dream? I guess that was a fever dream that Drogo showed up. Chase Cat Stevens off, but that could have been real. And then I was breathing on the fire to Drogo. And maybe because I was feverish, Drogo recognized that I was like uh, to be pitied or sick. So he didn't, maybe that's it, like dragons or lizards are smart about that. So he didn't eat me. 
If he, well, if he was real smart, he would just burn me up. But Cat Stevens bolted. Obviously, Aristotle's not going to show up without Cat Stevens' fantasy fiction time machine. Um, I knew I, I'd made don't worry, I'll build a new uh, practice facility for for our stuff. But yeah, the next thing I know, I wandered out of the cave and into these grasslands. And they were nice and dewy. Thank you for that, gods. Um, Crone, I'm not sure if that was you. Actually, Barky, that's probably on you. Um, And Jester got the paper cut I got on my um, privates. It's probably you, so thank you for that. (laughs) Thanks a lot. Not paper cuts, a grass cut, same difference. But I, I was able to lie down in the dewy grass and it must have ingested some sort of either a grass or, well, I guess, like, I don't know, the fever went on forever. But at some point it broke. And right now I'm just a broken man, I guess. Because um, then a couple, you know, a couple days later, the grass was high enough that it kept me shaded from the sun. I just think I just slept everything off. There was a nice breeze, so... Miller, you, you kind of use the water wheel and stuff, so thank you for the breeze. Fire inside me, Smith, finally forged some sort of antibody to chase the disease away, so I thank you for that. Cronia, yeah, your wisdom to f- wising the body to just sleep in the grass probably helped me heal. Barky, I thank you for the grasp. So I think I got everybody. Jester, thanks, because my spirit did. I still feel pretty low and down. But now I guess I'm looking to build me back up situation for you guys. So it's like a fresh start because the old plans are gone. It's kind of like that season four never happened because we're back in, you know, time kind of anyway, fictional thing so it's a fresh start i guess and maiden will have a fresh start for practicing uh pretend love making and then when you're ready to go you know maybe 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 my new fresh start doesn't involve you though because i don't know i get a feeling that um something new out there for me but you could change my mind i don't know you know i'm open to it whatever I haven't seen you, so maybe I miss you, maybe I don't. So that's about it, gods. Uh, yeah, I'm your servant still. Uh, vengeance will be wreaked, I guess, on the on that old the fake hound. He's out there somewhere. Cat Stevens is out there. Aristotle's out there. So my enemies seem to have united against me. But that's actually a good thing because that fake hound is so useless. That Cat Stevens is gonna, and I mean, there's not Aristotle's gonna, not gonna have anything. So that that'll blow up in their faces, hopefully. Well, yeah, guys, I'm here to conduct your will. Um, you're humbled, humble, humble, humbled, humbled by the fever of by eating mashed up giant and a hound. Um, I don't know. Is that like um, what is dead may never die now because. Wow, maybe there's some sort of the, the cool hound, the original hound, 
and Mag the Mighty are inside me. At some level, molecularly, they have to be, right? I couldn't. So we got that going for us. So I'll be in touch, gods. I'm just going to recover if that's okay. And But like I said, I'm a broken man. I don't know. I guess I've been broken the whole time. And I've been trying to fix myself the whole time, which has been my mistake until, like I said, I was even praying selfishly for you guys for the first when we first met. But now I'm your servitude, servant, humble, you know, just willing to carry out your wills and not mine be done. And like I said, I'm, I've had some missteps. And now I'm just in a discernment mode, I guess. So that's where we're at. I'm going to discern some stuff. And by discern, I probably mean I need to sleep a couple more days and drink some water, ham. But I'm full of gratitude for the for you guys keeping me here and sending that dragon maybe or whatever happened in the fever dream that Cat Stevens bolted. So thank you, and I'll see you guys soon. And I guess we're, you know, where we're starting again, starting anew, fresh. Winter's coming. That's good for my fever to cool it down. Uh... Um, and, you know, all that stuff. Uh, yeah. Okay, good night, gods. I, uh, I will rest only to do your bidding. You are the most mighty gods. Don't let those other gods, you know, put their shine on you. Amen. Um,